everybody. This is the Wild Ass Podcast, and I am your host, Wild Ass Craig. This is episode 34, and in this episode, I get to introduce all of you to Kyle Bradshaw. He's a guy you may have heard of before this show. On his YouTube channel, Many Bikes, Kyle can be found reviewing tires from most of the reputable manufacturers, mainly in the adventure scene. I met Kyle a few years back through his most recent employer, Nelson Rigg. We've since gotten to work side by side, do some riding together, and become friends through it all. We're just going to get this fired up, so Kyle, welcome to the show. What's going on, Craig? Thanks for having me. really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, we've we've been trying to put this together for a while, but obviously we're both <laughs> busy, and we made it work. Well, story of my life, Craig. Story of my life. It is. It's the, the love of working in the industry, right? You don't, you don't get any time to do anything but work in it. You, however, do get a little bit of time to enjoy it. That is correct. There was a segment of time there that I used to tease that if I didn't commute, I wouldn't be a motorcyclist, even though I work in the motorcycle industry. <laughs> it's funny how true that is for so many people in this industry. Oh, it's nuts. I mean, we're, we're at the shop 12 hours a day, and then you come home, you got family life, and it's like, where do you squeeze that time in to go roll the two wheels down the road? Well, this time we're squeezing it in at five o'clock in the morning, your time. So thank you very much for making this happen. <laughs> no problem. I'm happy to be here. Have you been on a podcast before? I have been on, yes. They were video podcasts, not audio podcasts, but it was a podcast. Sure. I, uh, I wanted to ask, and you had kind of answer, answered that before we got started. So so now I know, and now everybody else knows. But I know we're a little bit pressed for time because it's morning, so we might go over and keep your kids late from school and everything. But tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your family. Yeah, so we got a family of five. Baron is eight. Harper is turning six this month, next week, actually. And then London is four. So... Brooke and I got married nine years ago, it'll be 10 years this next year, and uh, yeah, started the baby train. We got three of them, and it's a lot of fun. They're definitely fun, and at ages that are keeping you quite busy. Not just you, both of you, <laughs> your wife. We have to give her some credit. So we have to give her all the credit for them getting bussed around. We just started team sports, so we have all three of them. Baron's doing basketball, Harper's doing soccer, and London and Harper are both doing softball, so... Doing practices and games all weekend, it's been quite an addition. Which brings us back to that comment of, if you didn't commute, you may not be a biker. <laughs> right. Of course, I get to know you and I get to know a lot of your story, but for the listeners, and have you listened to this show before? I have, yeah. Okay. The last one I listened to was uh, Mr. Rock On, Mr. Sean Thomas. Okay, so been a while, but the, the idea of the show is, this kind of came about because... You know the deal. We get to travel. We travel a lot of places. We meet a lot of cool people, and there are a lot of really cool stories. And I am fortunate enough to meet people like yourself who have cool stories, and I, I want to share them with the world because I, I think it's neat, and you deserve it. So that's what I want to do is get your story. Where did all of this start for you, motorcycle life? Man, my motorcycle lifestyle, it's just part of our family. So my, my grandfather rode in the Korean War. He actually was part of a tank recovery unit. So he would actually go out on the motorbike, scout out where the tank was not working at or broken down at, would get the intel. He'd then ride his motorcycle back to 
camp with coordinates and things of that nature and tools that they needed to fix the vehicle in order to be able to recover it or fix the vehicle so they could drive it out or what they needed to be able to recover it if uh, it needed to be extracted. So that was kind of cool. So we came back from the war and then became a, he loved riding motorcycles. He had a motorcycle prior to going into the war. Uh, I want to say it was a 125cc Harley Davidson, kind of interesting back then. Anyway, came back from the war and became a sheriff, or actually not sheriff, a highway patrol for Utah. So he rode motorcycles as a motor cop for the highway patrol for years. Um, my father has always ridden a motorcycle. And then when I was three years old, he bought a 1978 KZ1000 that I rode home from the dealership on. We actually got pulled over on that trip home and the cop said that we couldn't do it. So uh, <laughs> mom drove what, around the corner. What put couldn't back you on do? Trip. What's that? What couldn't you do? Oh, well, I was three years old, so I was riding in, in front of him holding onto the tank, and they didn't like that very much. Okay. Even back then? Even back then, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I was three years old, rode home on a motorcycle, and then, uh, of course, went on numerous motorcycle trips with Dad. And then I was in third grade when I started riding dirt bikes. And then, uh, yeah. So, when it comes to street motorcycles, my first motorcycle was a Honda CX-500 that was my grandfather's. It was in 1979. And my father used to joke that when I could pick it up, I could learn to ride it. So I was probably 14 years old. And uh, I was like, hey, Dad, I want to try this. He goes, all right, fine. So he rolls out the street, dumps it over on one side. I, I literally get a hernia lifting this thing up. <laughs> I get to the top. I put the kickstand down. I'm like, there. He's like, yeah, well, usually when people pick their motorcycle up, they're tired, and they drop it over on the other side. So he <laughs> put it on the other side, and then you pick it up, and I did it. And he's like, all right, well, you earned your right. So we went down to the local church parking lot, and I learned how to ride. And at 15 and a half, I got a motorcycle license, and I've been on a motorcycle almost every day since. That is crazy. So because you say you've been on a motorcycle every day since. <laughs> most, most, <laughs> most. Tell us where you live. So I live in California. We have a year-round riding season. In the winter, it does get icy. You know, it's 32, 34 degrees in the morning, ice on the road frost on the flowers but once it warms up i mean it's usually 50 60 degrees during the daytime so i mean our riding weather here is amazing uh year round but yeah so year round rain or shine get out there and just startle. i think the first time you and i got to ride together was my trip out to southern california and i stopped at a shop and the guy said yeah we don't pay high taxes for anything else other than the weather here because the weather's always great it's pretty phenomenal i mean in san clemente the current town i mean they 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 tout this place as having the world's best weather, and I'm pretty partial to that now that I've been here for a couple of years. I mean, the hottest it gets is high 80s, low 90s, and that's only for a week out of the year. And then, uh, yeah, as far as as cold as it gets, I don't think I've ever seen it colder than, I don't know, 48, 50. It's pretty pretty nice. That is. That's really, I mean, to me, you know, being in Minnesota, 50 is a nice riding day. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's amazing. Nice and brisk in the morning gets to be mesh jacket weather during the day or vent open during the day. And then as soon as the sun goes down, it gets chilly and crisp and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to when you were a kid. You rode dirt bikes for a while, right? That's correct. That's correct. So um, there was an old Yamaha. I don't even know what it was, but old metal fender, metal chrome fenders, front and rear, like a little uh, TT bike or something that the neighbor had sitting out behind his shed. And uh, he said, how old was I then? It would have been junior high school. And he says, hey, man, if you want to get that thing running, well, we 
we were pushing it around his backyard for probably a year and a half or so. We made little jumps, made a motocross track, and three of us would push the back fender and just mess around with it. And he was like, "Hey, man, if you can get that to run, you guys can, you guys can ride it." We're like, "Sweet!" So we did some research and figured out what we needed to do, and essentially we just cleaned the carbs and changed the oil, and it ran. So we rode that thing for almost three years before we actually all opted in and got our own little uh, motorcycles. I ended up with a Honda 80. My buddy had a Suzuki, and uh, my third buddy he had a Yamaha. So it was the battle of the brands right from the beginning. Oh, yeah, right from the beginning. And it was just like, <laughs> who's like it faster? Who could do what? Oh, yeah, it was great. That's the best way to get good. So we were, uh, so two years after we moved into the house, they started building this pile of dirt. And they ended up building an overpass that went over to a housing development that was going to be built years to come. Well, that years to come ended up being like 15 years. So it was perfect. So we just go out the end of the street make a left, make a left, and then we were up and over the overpass into basically an abandoned field that backed up to marshland. So we were able to create dirt bike tracks, pedal bike tracks, BMX tracks, anything that we wanted to over there. And basically it was an unjurisdicted part between two cities, the city of Newark and the city of Fremont. So it was basically unpatrolled and we could go over there and have fun and basically do whatever we wanted to do. That's cool. Nothing better than learning just like that. Where did it go from there? So did you get bigger dirt bikes or is that when you just went right to street? So I rode that 80 for years and years and years. And then uh, I did go straight to street. And while I was riding that CX500, uh, it would have been my junior year of high school. Basically, the same thing happened. I had a neighbor that had an old YZ250. When old, it was only two years old. But it was just sitting outside his house. 92 YZ250. And uh, we picked that thing up and got it running. Basically, just had foul spark plugs, so we changed the spark plugs, mixed some gas. It was an old two-stroker. Then we went out to uh, basically where Leslie Salt makes all their salt in the city of Newark. There's a, a big field back there that we used to go ride in. It was a blast. So then what was the – so you got to the CX-500. Where did it go from there? <clears throat> Bigger and better yeah, on the sir. street, right? Yeah, the CX-500 was a street bike. It was actually a V-twin motorcycle from Honda that, that – I forget what they, what do they call that motor? It was a really weird motor, liquid cooled longitudinal V twin. So basically, the motor the motor was almost in there sideways, and instead of the V going forward, it went sideways. So okay. basically, the I'm cylinder familiar, yeah, I'm the familiar cil- with that. The cylinders were at your knees. Super weird. But I have a, I have a story to tell about that. Let's hear. It. Okay. When I started riding a motorcycle, and, and that's how I learned how to pick it up, when I actually got my motorcycle license, that motorcycle's advanced coil system was burned out. So the bike would rev to like, I don't know, somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 RPMs. And then whenever it would switch over to the advanced coil system, it would basically go into, uh, it would go into what we feel like now is traction control. The motor would start to stutter and I'd have to shift the gear uh-huh. in order to get it into that lower RPM. So okay. top speed on that thing was like, 58 60 miles an hour which made my parents super happy i couldn't do wheelies you know except for really short ones until i hit that power band limitation um and it didn't go very fast so i got to ride that thing around for lots of years we never fixed it it required a case split in order to do that and dad was not gonna do that so i rode that thing for years and years until my father got a new motorcycle. So at the time, he had the KZ-1000, and then he was also running a uh, Suzuki 1100L. 
But I want to say I was uh, just out of high school, and he swapped from that Suzuki over to his first Goldwing. And then I took over the Suzuki and rode that for another four years. Now, that Suzuki GF1100L was interesting. It was one of the first cruiser-type motorcycles that looked just like a Harley-Davidson. It sounded really good, looked like a Harley, but it was inline four, which made it just a little bit different than the other V-Twins that were out there. Sound different, power different, everything about it would be different. Oh, yeah, for sure. Way faster than what you were on, for sure. Yeah, that one topped out at like 125, 130. But it got death speed wobbles there at the top, so we didn't do that very often. But that was my first entry into like the cruiser style motorcycle. Rode that for several years and then picked up a Honda VT1100C, which was a motorcycle that Honda actually got sued over because it sounded too close to a Harley Davidson. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yep. So that VT1100C went into the shop for a general maintenance and service. When I was there, the Honda truck was unloading a brand new 2003 VTX 1300. And the bike was gorgeous. It was a V-twin, it was Harley-esque, and uh, it was pretty inexpensive. But while the Shadow was being serviced, I wanted to take that 1300 for a test drive. So I did and ended up taking it home. And that's where my, my life in the motorcycle space began. So up until that point, I had gone to school for business management and I was on that trajectory path. I was assistant manager at a drugstore. But after I got that BTX 1300, I started accessorizing it and found a small little online shop that actually had a physical presence across the street from that job. And uh, yeah, that's where I got my first job in the motorcycle space. And that's why I am where I am today. Do you remember the name of the shop? Is it still around? And what were you doing? Oh, yeah. The shop is called Cruiser Customizing. So we specialize in metric V-twin parts. So the funny story about that is my UPS driver, when I worked at Long's, was like, hey, man, there's a shop across the street that does custom accessories for your bike. I'm like, dude, it's a Honda. Nobody makes custom accessories. He goes, oh, dude, they have exhaust pipes and they have saddlebags. I'm like, dude, this is a Honda. He goes, no, dude, I'm serious. So I went across the street and walked in. There was like two computers, two dudes in the front room, and one guy in the back doing some shipping. And that was it. That was the entire company, three people. And they were stoked because they had never seen this brand new motorcycle that was just released like a month prior. They hadn't seen one yet, so they got a chance to be able. I'd park it there when I went to work in the morning, walk back across the street, and they would test fit parts and accessories, and they did a little bit of R&D on it and made some of their own parts. But yeah, it was neat. So Cruiser Customizing was the name of the gig. I got in there at ground level, and uh, we grew that thing huge. 40 employees, $25 million in business. It was a lot of fun. What exactly did you do there? Yeah, so I started out doing customer service, answering all the phone calls, answering all the emails. Within a year, we had six different phone reps and people answering emails. And that was back in 2003. So 2005, we'd outgrown that building. We moved into a 12,000-square-foot building in Livermore. Um, I had 20 people on my customer service team. And uh, we had more than 200 emails coming in a day, and we were fielding almost 400 phone calls. It was a big deal. So my job as customer service manager or director was to try to minimize the amount of calls that we had coming in. Again, this is an e-commerce company. It was very new. It was, I mean, Amazon was just in their early days. Nobody in the space other than, say, Motorcycle Superstore was starting to do anything online. So we really didn't have much competition. 
And the way this business got started is we, we basically became MySpace of the motorcycle industry. We, you had your own profile page where you could go through our catalog and click any of the items that you would want to have on your wish list, if you will. And then items that you did have, you'd click on the item and you'd write a review about it. We were the very first website that allowed reviews like Amazon had. So it was a cool, safe place for people to show off their motorcycles and to add parts and to have a wish list and things of that nature. But anyway, getting back to to how I got to where I'm at, um, I decided back in 2005 that I had to end all of these phone calls and emails coming in. It was just so much action. And the problem was all these all these parts had like a generic stock image. And we're talking the very early days of online shops for motorcycle parts and accessories. So we had maybe one really crappy image and maybe three to five bullet points for what this product was about. Um, everyone was buying their parts at a, at a parts counter still. So they would learn about parts from their parts guy. But online, you see three bullet points and some really crappy picture. It was tough to make a buying decision without asking a bunch of questions. So 2005, I grabbed my first video camera and I recorded my very first episode, which was actually for the uh, battery tender. <laughs> That's what I did the first one on. And it just became an unreal snowball. I put the first product review up onto that product detail page and it cut the number of questions down like instantaneously. It was, it was phenomenal. Um, we saw a 4% increase in conversion on the product detail page, which was unheard of. And so we started to do more. I ended up surveying the customer service team, finding out what the most common questions or the, the, the product that had the most questions. I would then pull that product, record the video, edit it, put it up, and then move on to the next one. And over the course of three years, I created over 5,000 product videos. Wow. And this was all for Cruiser Customizing, though. None of this was for yeah, yourself. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. That <clears> is very cool because, uh, you know, like you said, back in 2003, this was all unheard of. So you mm -hmm. did 5,000. How many is that a day? Well, it became this, it became this interesting thing, right? Like, so I, I was doing it to minimize my workload, right? I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I needed to minimize the workload that I, I mean, I was putting in 14 hour days and it was just, I'm just trying to manage these people. And it was just a mess. So in order to, to facilitate that, I created this whole video marketing program and we started doing that, and it was an after-hours thing. It was like the boss was like, this is a waste of your time. Your job is to get these questions answered and things of that nature. So it was, it was this love-hate relationship with that project to begin with. And while on the, on the big parts, it made sense. On the things that we had lots of questions on that actually made money, it made sense. But I took it a little bit further than that and wanted to give everybody the opportunity to learn from this thing. I mean, something as simple as a cramp buster, right? It just flips over your grip and you rest your palm on it. And the thing costs $7 brand new. But the interesting part about that is, is yeah, we're not making a ton of money on it. But when people see it in action, they purchase it. So the first time we actually did a, a video marketing campaign, it would have been in 2000 and we bought out all of the remaining very first edition first gear mesh jackets okay so i did a video review on these mesh jackets we bought all of them i want to say it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 jackets that we purchased did a video review of the jacket showed it in action showed what it did 
We then sent that out into an email to the 100,000 people that we had on our list, which was unheard of as well back then. And we sold over 50 of those jackets over that one weekend. It was pretty wild. 50? 50 jackets in a weekend. We're like, whoa, all right, we need to do more of these. Then it became a weekly thing where I'd create a story around a product. We'd launch the video. We'd then put it up on the website. We'd then launch the email campaign. And it was, it was huge. When that really kicked off, we were doing a lot of that. Again, the whole thing was built around these products that people had in their, in their wish list or in their carts. We could see how many people had what products in their wish list. So we'd create campaigns around those wish list parts. We'd give them a deal. We'd send them an email and they'd purchase it. It was a machine and it worked extremely well. So fast forward to 2008 and first gear, the jacket man apparel manufacturer was doing a product release of a product called TPG, Technical Performance Gear. They were the first company to use D3O armor in their gear. And they invited me out to Colorado for the release of that line of products as I was one of the, the, the first uh, vlog style on the motorcycle showing products and videos and things of that nature in the space. When I get out there and I'm sitting down with Mr. Mark Kinkart, who is now one of the uh, marketing directors at Climb, and I met Mr. Anthony from Revzilla. They scraped together a couple pennies and got out there, rented a motorcycle, and uh, that first night we sat down. He's like, dude, I love what you're doing. We're going to be doing the same thing. And I basically tips and tricks, and it was an open book. And every That's year awesome. after that, we got together for the next three or four years, and we kind of compare notes. and. So circling back to your question, how did I manage to get that many videos on product detail pages? Man, that was that was tough. Basically, once we saw that the project was working, I was doing two or three videos a week, typically one big one and one little one. I'd choose one that was really in-depth, and then I would choose one or two that was pretty simple where I could just showcase it a little bit and turn into like a you know minute, minute and a half video just showing what it looked like and what it did. Then I started doing collections of videos where I would do sound systems and I would have 15 sound systems all here on the table. And I talk about the, the benefits of this one versus that one and why you want a sound system on your bike and how they connect and how they attach. And I would show basically do an overview video, which then could go on every one of those product detail pages. And then I would break out specific like installations of each of those in forthcoming episodes. So it kind of got people hooked and got people engaged and it was exciting. At one point in time, the old owner of Barron's custom accessories, Mr. John Bonchaldi, saw this video craze going crazy and uh, he decided he wanted to build a company around that as well. And they would basically take, I don't know, as many stock images as you have for the product, kind of put them into a system or an editing software that would spin them around and rotate them 360 degrees and then we put audio over the top hey this is a such and such from Kuriakin and it does this this and this and basically read the bullet points and uh <laughs> it turned into a nightmare actually we paid this dude to make 500 videos for us and they were all identical and all the same so we launched these videos that basically showed people the same pictures that were on the product page and had my voice as the audio telling people about them and enough of those were up on those on those pages and started to flood if you will our youtube channel that people thought that that's what they would see every time they clicked the video button so we saw viewership just tank 
one of those things that sounds like a good idea on the front from the people that are putting money into the business, but sure. we lost the faith. We lost the connection, and then we had uh, it was a pretty big rebuilding that we had to do on that one. Basically, struck all those from every one of those pages, and then uh, had to go back and recreate a personal video for each of those. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's something that's that's working really well, but it's time consuming, and you try to you know make a process out of it, and it turns in being less personal, and then uh, consumers don't want to see that, and you just gotta learn, live and learn, and move on, and Try the next thing. And trying the next thing. So how did this move to many bikes? Was there stages in between or how did this come about? <laughs> so it's pretty interesting. So as far as the many bikes channel, at Cruiser Customizing, we had the initial page that you could have, your bike page with your products on it and things of that nature. And then when I started doing videos, the ones that weren't product-centric there really wasn't a place for those on the platform. Like the videos had to be tied to a direct product. And I wanted to do a bunch of fun stuff like events and all kinds of things like that. And there just wasn't a place for that in the platform. So I created the mini bike persona to be that rough off the cuff. I could do fun stuff on that channel that I couldn't put on the company channel. And it ended up just being like this raw uncut, Kyle mini bikes if I would do whatever I wanted to do. There's some pretty interesting things on there, like Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. Explain uh, that. So anyway, I was uh, I had uh, some dirt bikes and we went out and rode dirt bikes on Super Bowl Sunday and I created this little clip. I'll have to find it and send you the link. But uh yeah, it was bad. It was one of these things where like, hey, what do real men do on Super Bowl Sunday? And it was like ride dirt bikes and it was uh, we were just being silly, <laughs> but I ended up po- I ended up posting that and got lots of hate mail on that one. There were the diehard motorcyclists that didn't care about sports that absolutely loved it. It kind of it resonated with them, if you will. But then the rest of the world that sits around and watches football did not like that very much. And it was kind of a bomb that went off. And anyway, took a minute to recover from that one as well. But anyway, yeah, so many bikes. So many bikes was my persona channel that I created. And I created that back in 2005. And anything that I couldn't post on the company pages and profiles that's what i that's where i posted my own personal stuff and things that that were just different edgy if you will use a modern term for what was going on back then um so the evolution of of videos and mini bikes and my persona in the space kind of shifted i mean i was known as that metric cruiser guy we were selling worldwide and again it was 20 million dollars in business and it was it was phenomenal it was a great great time we built this huge community. It was over 300,000 people deep. Sales were amazing. I had done videos on just about every product that we had. Uh, if it was a decent product, it had a video on it. And I was coming, we were coming to the end where Cruiser Customizing was looking to sell. The owner was ready to, to get out and do his own thing. So it was time for me to start looking for somewhere else to go. And over the previous several years, I had kind of morphed from the Cruiser. I mean, we, I still own three Cruiser motorcycles, but I kind of morphed my passion was in adventure motorcycling. I had three different adventure bikes: I had a 950 Super Enduro, a DRZ 400, KTM 450, and then I had uh, a BMW R1200 GS Adventure 2008 model. But anyway, so my 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 passion had shifted towards adventure riding. So when I knew that Cruiser was kind of looking to sell, and my spot there was kind of my days there were numbered. 
So I started looking around and seeing how I could stay in the space, but be more relevant in my passion, which was adventure motorcycling. And ended up coming across this little teeny tiny shop in Dublin, California called Adventure Designs. Again, two brothers, one dude doing shipping, and they were less than a million dollars in business at the time. And I, we came in there, we did the same video marketing type thing, and uh, we built their website at that point in time. They only serviced BMW motorcycles. So I came in on my two. That's like half the adventure space. We have this whole yeah. Kate Orange site over here that we should probably add all these orange bikes to the website and start selling products. And of course, that was a huge win. And uh, yeah, we grew that business from 2013 to 2017. Awesome, awesome growth. That company is doing really well. And yeah, it was a super fun chapter. So did many bikes follow you there? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? So the many bikes channel was always this this my personality, right? That's where I got to do my fun things. And it and it suffered. I mean it grew there at the beginning with Cruiser. And then when I got in like just heads down making videos for you know, that's all I did was make videos for Cruiser for a really long time. I didn't post anything over on that other channel unless it was not able to go on the business channel. And then the same type of thing happened over at Adventure Design. Many bikes came with me, and I, I, there's, there's several videos of me in the early days of Adventure Designs. Like we'd go out on rides and things, and I'd post those up. But when I'm heads down making videos for those brands, that's my job. My job is to grow their business, not my own little channel. Sure. So the channel suffers. Like there's the you know, these ebbs and flows, right? Where, where I'm doing a bunch of stuff on my own, and then I get heads down building this other brand, this other business. And then I don't do much over here, but all my effort is focused on growing their channel. I mean, we grew their channel and monetized them within six months. It was nuts. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, I did that for several years. But I have all these use cases where we've blown up channel. I mean, Cruiser Customizing Channel was huge. The Adventure Designs Channel became huge. Just being able to, to work with these businesses, use video marketing, and be able to get them to that next level was, it was fun. Super fun. I, I really enjoy doing it. So yeah, I mean, many bikes is me. I mean, that's just that's it. It's my own personal thing. It's what I do on the side, and uh, yeah. So it's not really associated with these businesses, but these businesses benefit from it because people that follow me there, of course, when I go to a new company or a new business, they want to support me as well. So they come along for the ride, and it's, it's been really awesome. But yeah, so I worked with Adventure Designs from 2013 to 2017, uh, and then when we had our, when we got pregnant with our second child. We decided that we wanted to be closer to family, so I started looking for employment down in Southern California. And where did that bring you? So it just happened to be Fourth of July weekend, and we were passing by Chaparral Motorsports, and I'm like, you know what, babe? That would be a really cool place to work for. They're one of the biggest motorcycle shops in Southern California. They do online stuff. might be interesting to go in there and have a conversation. So I dialed my Tucker Rocky buddy, who happened to be their sales rep, and was like, hey, man, what can I do to get a uh, conversation with these people? And he's like... <laughs> You won't even believe it. I'm sitting in Dave's office right now. Hey, Dave, do you want to meet up with Kyle? He's like, yeah, have him swing by on Monday. I'm like, dude, Monday's 4th of July. You're going to be there working? He's like, we're always here working. I'm like, all right, cool. So on the way back from Arizona, uh, 4th of July, I swung by Chaparral Motorsports, had a conversation, and it was a long conversation, probably close to three hours. And I mean, it wasn't a job interview. It was just I wanted to talk shop, talk business, talk industry happenings what's going on uh, it ended up being a really good conversation talking about websites and e-commerce and all kinds of fun stuff and uh 
drove home and had a job offer on the table the next day. And that there is how I came to Southern California. Nice. Success story. All from a visit. Oh, it's pretty rad. I mean, we've had several of those now over the course of my, my tenure in the space. That's pretty fun. Fast forward two months later, and I'm down here living in Southern California, working for Chaparral Motorsports. And the goal was to grow their entire business. I mean, they already had a guy doing their, their videos for their channel. His name was Matt. He did an awesome job. But he lasted a couple months before he took a job with the tire company up north. It's kind of funny. He moved up north. I moved down south. We kind of switched roles. And then we began the growing the Chaparral Motorsports channel, which we you know, we blew that thing up. It was super fun. That's cool. So you were doing tires for them? Yeah, mainly? growing growing their tire business. They do so much volume in tires. It's mind-boggling. Warehouse full of tires. It's, it's, it's incredible. That's a huge, huge piece of their business. And I did that for a while. I started growing the tire business, making videos on tires, things of that nature. And then uh, it kind of morphed into what I've been doing for the last 20 years is just teaching people about products, giving them an idea of how the product works, why they'd want to buy it, put it on the product detail page, send an email out, and presto, they'll come. Crazy. How long were you with Chaparral? I was with Chaparral Motorsports until COVID hit. COVID hit, knee-jerk reactions, everyone freaked out, and I mean, Chaparral Motorsports laid off about 150 of us employees. Boy, if they could look back on that now, huh? No, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, they laid us off, and they ran a skeleton crew, and I mean, good for them. I mean, they were just, I mean, COVID times, right? I mean, they were an essential business. They were able to stay open. They had to limit the number of people in the store, so they basically had an out a line outside of the store that was hours long in order to get up to the door. They'd ask you what you wanted. They'd have somebody at the door walk you to that product or to the parts counter, pick up that product, and then you'd buy it, and then you'd walk out of the store again. I, it was unbelievable, that process. But the process worked, and they made money, and people got served. And yeah, COVID. COVID's crazy. That was. But during my tenure there, I actually worked with a guy named Suburban Delinquent. He was a street bike moto vlogger from the Southern California area. And uh, he wanted to get into dirt biking. So he contacted me. He was like, hey, man, I want to get a dirt bike. Um, I want to learn how to ride on track. And I want to learn how to do all these things. I'm like, sweet. We could totally do a story around this. So we did. So we got him a WR250. We wrapped it. We took him to the track. One of my good friends, Travis Snyder, was a great racer and track rider. And he taught him everything that he knew and uh then suburban delinquent joined his first or attempted his very first race ever which was the lake elsinore grand prix i actually rode in that with him that first year super fun anyway did 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 a lot of fun stuff but it was when i was working with suburban delinquent um where he basically was like dude kyle why you built all these businesses you've helped all these people get to where they are and your channel always tougher he goes why don't you do some more stuff on there I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. So I started doing a little bit more here and there, little product reviews of the own, the things that I use on a daily basis. So just talking about the things that I, and that was, and that goes back to to this this whole this whole thing. Like my my vision in the space, my personal passion is helping other people have the best ride possible. And maybe if that that's your title of the podcast, I mean, my my vision out there is teaching you about things so that you can have the best ride possible. I mean, I learned from trial and error. 
stuffing newspapers down the front of my jacket so the wind wouldn't get through me and make me cold. Man, waterproof gear. I mean, learning that you could have a an exterior waterproof shell over the top that has zippers that open and mesh vents and things of that nature. I mean, that takes me back to 2000, I want to say six or seven, walking through the indie trade show. And I come across Tourmaster and see this jacket that's like 160 or 180 bucks. It had three different liners in it. It was waterproof. It was insulated. It had vents in it. And prior to that, I mean, I was riding around in a leather cruiser jacket. And uh, I didn't know that these technical things existed out there. So I made movies on that and showed people how they could be inexpensively covered and comfortable. And, uh, yeah, just teaching people. I mean, when you're new to the space, you just don't know. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what's good, what's bad, what works, what doesn't work. And having been there and learned from trial and error, my my life goal is to teach people so they don't have to go through those hardships, if you will. And that is why you have, what do you have, 17, 18,000 followers or subscribers on your YouTube channel? Yeah, we're getting close to 18. I want to say it's like 17, 7 at the moment. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And, and that's, that's why. That's a, yeah, and the, the whole the whole thing is just just teaching people that to have a good time. Um, you mentioned in the beginning that a lot of people know me from the tire reviews, and that's one thing that, man, as at working at a shop and being in the adventure space, that's probably the number one question that I get on like, hey, which tire should I get? I mean, that's a really jaded question. I mean, you can there is a tire for every different ride that you go on. If you're riding the Baja, I'd put you on a different tire than if you're riding up in the Pines, which I'd put you in a different tire than if you were out in the desert. Or if you're going to be riding Johnson Valley and you're going to be going through super deep sand and then up into the rocks. Like every, I mean, if you're riding in Florida on the sugar sand or, man, where was that? I was out in uh, Connecticut. Oh my gosh. The sticks and the, the ruts and the mud out there. I mean, I'd totally choose a different tire than I would choose here on, on the West Coast. So that's probably the number one question that I get or was getting was uh, which tire should I put on my motorcycle? And I ride this type of bike and, you know, tires on the same tire on different bikes, they handle different as well. There's some tires that I've ridden on an Africa Twin that I actually hate on my 1190. They just step out sideways and the amount of power that goes down to the ground makes the tire perform differently one bike to the other. And it's hard. It's like most, most people don't have an opportunity to get their hands on that many tires and then let alone have the time and energy to be able to run through each of them to figure out what they like. So I started that tire, the, the adventure tire test on my own personal channel. And of course, that's where we get into the conundrum again, right? So the business sees that this is doing really well. And my goal for them is to drive business and sales. Um, and they want that on their channel as well. So we had to figure out a way in order to, to kind of balance that, if you will. And that kind of happened with the Bridgestone AX41 was the first tire. Bridgestone actually called Dave and was like, hey, Dave, Kyle's doing this tire testing. He goes, Kyle's doing what? So anyway, we worked through that and uh, built a tire test loop that I have. And uh, yeah, started churning out tires. And I've tested over 58 sets of Adventure tires to date. Wow. So yeah, your, pretty adventure, cool. your adventure loop, is that yeah. just something by you, like a 100-mile course, or what do you do? Yeah, so I, I just I had to create a way that, that I could 
quickly evaluate tires and not just evaluate the tire, but be able to run each of these tires on the same surfaces, on the same terrains, at the same pressures to get a baseline of how these tires perform. I mean, it's great. I mean, if you put a set of tires on again and and you take a trip to Baja, you're going to have a different experience than the guy that puts these tires on and goes rides in the pines. Um, just different, different terrains feel differently. And, it, and it, I just was trying my best to find some way that I could cover as many terrains or different types of terrains as possible in a day's time. So the loop is close to just about 190 miles if I do the full loop. If I add a couple extra things on, it's usually 250 miles or so. But in that 180 to 250 miles, I can really tell you how a tire feels one tire to the other. Because it's going over the same train, it's going through the same corners, I'm running at roughly the same speed. And it's like just, it really is this amazing baseline that's been set that allows me to be able to tell you how a tire feels as compared to whatever other tire you're asking about. It's pretty fun. And it's a great excuse to get out and ride. It is. It is. But then, again, it goes back to that. Now now that you've done a couple of these, and we've seen the significant change in those sales patterns on the website, how do you do more of these? There was one week where I tested four tires in a week, where I would legit go out, run this. It's a long day, man. We started as soon as the sun comes up, 7 o'clock in the morning on the bike tearing out of this place and then, you know, setting up to get shots and, you know, the whole, the whole nine, the whole production part of, of this thing. It's not just going out and riding. It's going to each of these different sections and, and getting the shots and, and getting the, the feel of that particular part of the terrain. If it was just myself and I was running through it, it would take a good half day, three quarter day anyway, but stopping to be able to show people what's happening and explain to it or explain it to them, I should say, man, it's in depth. There were a lot of times that we were getting back to the shop as it was getting dark or or after it was dark. And then I'd roll the bike back into the shop, rip these wheels off, put the next set of tires on, and then we were there at 6 o'clock the next morning to do the next run. It was pretty intense. It's funny you talk about getting the shot and being out. You know, I've been fortunate enough to do some riding with you now at a couple of events, and it's it's fun when we get to talking to customers you know the retail public that's at these events and they're like yeah we want to come riding with you guys okay but here's the deal <laughs> we're not riding nonstop because we have to record video and pictures if you're okay with that let's go and it always works out right. pretty well but it, i think people are shocked at how much time it does take to stop set up take your picture get your drone out lose your drone get your drone back redo the trail it takes some time you could just see so. me right now beating my head on the desk talking about drones <laughs> No, it's one of those things, right? It creates this super dynamic footage, and it's amazing. But the five minutes it takes to stop the bike and pull the drone out and get it up in the air and then pack it back away so you can go get the 15 minutes of shots that you want to get if if you know if the area lends itself to that, and then you pull back over and have to pack everything back up again. But if you're going to launch the drone, it's a half hour out of your day. Bottom Easy. line. I mean, you just, can't, you just can't do it any quicker than that. And by the time you do that, Four times you've wasted an hour of your day throwing this thing up in the air to get how many seconds of shots you're going to actually use in a piece of footage. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It'd be nice to be able to do that with the production staff, wouldn't it? Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> just just have them sitting at each each of the spots you want them to be. Yeah, and then hey Johnny, all you're you in have charge to do is come through. We're yeah, go here next. 
<laughs> that would be rad. Yeah, and it, it's just like yeah, again the tire testing. I, I have cameras up by the front wheel, by the rear wheel, on the helmet, wherever I can mount them in order to get footage. And of course, rocks get kicked up and break cameras, and it's always fun. There's always something that happens. And you are a GoPro user, correct? Not much anymore. So I haven't been really using the GoPro since man since DJI launched their first Osmo action camera. Okay, um, I was thinking it was a GoPro on the front of your helmet that you wear. Yeah, it looks very similar. It's actually made by DJI. It's called the DJI Osmo Action. DJI was the first camera that had a really good display on the back so you could actually see what you're looking at without having to plug something into the camera in order to see that. The other thing that they were the first on was the front forward-facing camera. So you could turn it on, you could flip the screen, and you could basically vlog style yourself in the camera so you knew that you were getting the shot and that's probably gopro's biggest downfall over the years is you really don't know what you get until you you know get to where you're getting and put the card in and look and you're like oh shit i didn't get anything it's horrible yeah. but yeah i know the dji is great um i struggled with it in the beginning audio kept peaking and they had no way to adjust the volume so i ended up having to get an inline audio uh, dial so I can dial that back a little bit but once I figure that out uh, it's just the user interface on the DJI is just heads above I mean it's a real cinematic camera versus just a, a, a POV action cam they do a really good job when you go out now uh, well let's before we even get to this how did you end up with Nelson Rick was that the next <clears> place <throat> after roundabout situation so I've been doing product videos with Nelson Rig since 2018. I know Deb. Deb and I have known each other in the motorcycle space back in the cruiser customizing days. We've known each other for 20 years. And she's been at Nelson Rig for about nine years now, I believe. So when I was at Chaparral Motorsports and Nelson Rig would have a new product come out, Deb and I would get together. I'd take her up in the studio. we do product detailed videos about each of their new products that Nelson Rig would bring out. So you'll see a lot of our tail bag videos, our Route 1 line of luggage and stuff like that over on the Chaparral Motorsports channel. So I've known them for a long time. And one year when they brought new products out after I left Chaparral Motorsports, they were like, hey, do you want to come do videos for us? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So you'll see that I was the face of the Nelson Rig videos for three years prior to my actually being an employee with the company. Interesting. Um, and in the meantime, I went out to Arizona, worked at a small dealership, helped them get on their map digitally, launched a YouTube channel for them, grew that channel, monetized them within eight months. It was free ride. So it's fun. It's fun to watch these little businesses show growth and, and be great. But yeah, as far as Nelson Rig goes, it would have been two years ago almost that we started the conversation about me coming on full time. And uh, we made it happen. And it was AIM Expo two years ago that was my first business venture with Nelson Rig. It's been an awesome, awesome opportunity. It's definitely been fun getting to know you for the last couple of years, for sure. Did we first meet at Adventure Fest, California? Daytona Bike Week. No, I think we, we, we met the first Daytona Bike Week. Yeah, which was right before Adventure Fest. Correct. Yeah. 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 That's cool. And I know that uh, Deb thought very highly of you at the time because uh, she couldn't wait to introduce you. I love Deb. She's awesome. Oh, at the time? So you're saying she yeah, so yeah. So thanks, she was pretty excited to introduce you. <laughs> no, Deb's awesome. Like I said, we've been friends in the industry for 20 years, and it's always great to see her at events. And she just has this awesome, bubbly personality with the most positivity of 
anyone I've ever met. Yeah, she's amazing. But I, I thank her for trusting me and bringing me onto the team. And we've done some really fun stuff at Nelson Rig, and we've got some really cool stuff planned for the future. So I'm excited about this chapter. It's a lot of fun. Again, it's a, it's a fantastic company to work for, and we're doing fun things. And that's that's part of my happiness is being able to play on and with motorcycles every day, whether it be the cruiser segment or the adventure segment or I mean, the three-wheeled segment is huge. Uh, spiders, rikers, things of that nature. But just helping anybody who wants to be out there in the wind have the best ride possible. I tried to do the same. Fun. What's really cool is, you know, we get to know each other on kind of a, just a personal basis, right? You're, you're Kyle Bradshaw from Nelson Rick. You have this YouTube channel. And we work shows together. And then someone will come up and say, hey, aren't you that guy that does tire reviews? <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty fun. My biggest conundrum with that is is I'm a Nelson Rig employee at those events, and my job is to be teaching people about Nelson Rig products. So it really is it's it's a tough. It's a, I mean, I, I I need to answer their questions, but I need to be polite about it at the same time. Like, hey, look, this is my job. If you want to chat with me later, let's sit around dinner or let's get together here. And you know, I'll give them the, the quick answer, but I can't spend 20 minutes talking about their bike and their next trip and what they're doing. So I usually, you know respectfully ask them to respect my current business and, and come back and see me later. But, uh, no, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. That's just part of, of just being out there for so long. Uh, we were in South Dakota at the first get on ADD fest out there. And then they're like, Oh my gosh, didn't you used to do cruiser videos for cruiser customizing? I'm like, yes, sir. That was 20 <laughs> years ago. Pretty crazy. But he had a VSAR 1100 that he outfitted and watched all of my tutorial videos on that. And now he rides an adventure bike and was super curious about tires and luggage and all that fun stuff. So, I mean, it all, it all works together, right? It's fun. It's neat. So, an interesting, funny story about that. Just this last Sunday, we were driving the, the girls to their softball game and we passed this pickup truck near the park that had an 1190 in the bed. So I dropped the girls off and I'm like, hey, babe, I'm going to go talk to this guy real quick. And she goes, why are you gonna just going to stop and talk to some random guy? I'm like, well, he's got an 1190 in the bed of his truck and a Harley Davidson in the garage. I just want to go say hello. She's like, whatever. So anyway, <laughs> we dropped the kids off and I go over and I use in his garage and I step out. I'm like, hey, I'm Kyle Bradshaw. He goes, hey. He's like, look at me like, who in the F is this guy? And I'm like, hey, I just want to pop in. I got an 1190 as well. And we just started talking bikes. He was there for 20 minutes talking motorcycles. Come to find out he wants to sell it. And I'm like, all right, cool. I have two people that might be interested. And I said, hey, if you ever need tires, I sell Motaz. I sell Mitas. If you ever need any luggage, I sell Nelson Rig. But anyway, just stop by and say hello. And I left. He's like, oh, here's my numbers. Why don't you ping me? I might need tires here in the future. I'm like, all right, cool. So Monday morning, I ping him. I'm like, hey, man, this is Kyle. Stop by and talk to you. He goes, you don't by chance do tire videos do you <laughs> yeah i do he goes you look pretty familiar i just couldn't place it though it's kind of funny that is funny i remember you shared that with me via text and i was like <laughs> that's pretty cool you're famous some and random you're my friend <laughs> some random dude with his garage open that has a motorcycle that i have is stop and talk to him like you look familiar and then even fully geared on a bike that's not even yours not even the right color in the middle of a forest <laughs> 1,500 miles from home, we're riding through the woods, through the Black Hills, and someone yells, hey, it's Kyle Bradshaw. It's like you yeah, have a my... cheering section in the forest. That was, it blew my <laughs> mind. So it was kind of funny. So yeah, so we're riding past this group of people. It's like, I, I, I passed him. Like I, he was probably 
15 feet back behind me as, as I hear, Cobrasta! I'm like, no effing way. Again, I'm on a Yamaha Tenere 700, a bike that's not even mine, in the middle of some forest, 1,500 miles from home. So I flip around, and he's like, hey, man, I really appreciate your tire reviews. Because of your reviews, I bought the Dunlop Trail Max Mission, and then I want something a little more street-oriented. So I picked up the Pirelli Scorpion Rally STR. He's like, I'm happy, super happy with those choices, and I wouldn't have been able to make those choices if I hadn't watched what you had done, which makes you feel real good. I mean, it, it was it sucks. Like I have put tires on my motorcycles that are not the correct tires for the type of riding that I'm going to go do, and it's difficult. You struggle. You're on the struggle bus the whole time out, just wishing you would have put a different set of tires on. So being able to help people avoid that, I love that. Take pride in that. It's awesome. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. How having the incorrect tire, how how hard that makes things. Because I think the first time we rode together was the Mojave <laughs> Desert. <laughs> and you're on TKC 70. Yeah, I was on a tire that is primarily, what is it, 70 street, 30 dirt? And oh, yeah. we are sure. in sand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's rumored it's that there's so a video that... of me doing a 180. Oh, yeah. We have some good thoughts of you uh, of having some funness. The first time your motorcycle was ever outside, right? Uh, that I'll admit. <laughs> i think garage drops don't count so you're probably safe no i um, yeah there was it was on its side a few times there yeah no I and mean, that's and that's the thing right so all of these 80 20 tires you can make the back tires spin and you can get some traction and that's really not the i mean it's a lot easier with a knobby you have a knobby that has scoops on it or blocks that are going to grab terrain and throw it you're going to have better forward momentum but I find a lot of times people run a not aggressive enough front tire for the terrain that they're riding. Like a knobby tire will allow your, your motorcycle to track straight in the sand. Where in, in your case, you're running that TKC 70 front. It's basically just a, uh, a, a rounded carcass with a couple little grooves in it that aren't very deep. And you just kind of skate across the top or get kind of bounced around because there's not a lug to grab the terrain and keep that wheel straight. It can be tough. It was pretty tough, especially when uh, when the sand whoops got big and the speed didn't slow down like it probably should have. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's cool. What's uh, what's on the horizon for you, man? Any changes? Going to continue what we're doing? Are we are we going to get the kids into riding dirt bikes? Um. Yeah. The, the kids do ride. The kids all have their own electric e bikes. They have. Uh, they started out on Striders, then went to Stasics. So they've got their little electric dirt bikes that they ride around on. I would love to get them more into that. It's just that where we currently live, we're, we're limited. We're probably an hour and a half from anywhere that they could actually ride a dirt bike. So it would be, you know, a load up, go out, do it, come back, unload it. And it's, it's just, again, we talked about time, right? And the amount of time it would take. I mean, that's a five-hour round trip to go out and ride for an hour. Yeah, barely getting the knobbies in the sand. Yeah, I mean, unless you went out there and spent the weekend, but then it's just tough. It's tough. The, the, the current locale, if we could, if we, we lived in Arizona for a year, I mean, the desert was our front yard, so we could ride there all, I mean, they rode every day. But now that we're here back in the city again, an hour and a half from the nearest trails, it's just, it's, uh, I mean, it's just tough. Would I love them to ride more? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we need to figure out a way to make that happen, though. And the wife, is she on board with the kids riding? Um, yeah, she's okay with it. She's not opposed to it, but she's not a big rider herself. Does she, um, she, she doesn't ride on her a, own bike? Does she ride on back with you? Any Anything like that? 
Yeah, so it's funny. So when we first got together, her, we met at work, right? So we met at Cruiser Customizing back in 2006. Started dating in 2008. And when we first started dating, her parents were like, you will never, ever, all of her family, they were super, super anti-motorcycle. You will never, ever ask her to ride on the motorcycle and you're never going to take her on the motorcycle. I'm like, all right, cool. So we had this agreement that I would just never ask about it. And she didn't want to hear about it when I came home. So for the first eight months of our relationship, I'd go out on the weekend, I'd come out a day and come back. And it was super. And you, when you come back from a ride, you just want to share your, like, it was awesome. We did this and we did that. And I was holding that bike, bottoming that up and holding that in and not mm-hmm. being like that when I got home. So she wouldn't feel bad about not going. So eight months in and uh, I get home and she's just like super pissed. And I'm like, dude, what is the problem? Like what happened while I was gone? She's like, well, you, you never come home and talk about your rides and you never invite me to go with you. And I'm like, well, that I, when I signed up, they told me not to do that. <laughs> sure. So our first anniversary, I got our motorcycle helmet and a jacket and we started riding after that. And we rode together a lot, put lots of miles on. We did dual sport events together. We did all kinds of fun stuff. But uh, once Baron was born, our first child, I mean, she's only been on the bike probably three times since then. Um, wow. Just us. You know, who do you dish the kid with in order to go right. and get out and go for a ride? Yep, yep, for sure. But for one of our anniversaries, I bought her a DR125, stripped it down, frame up, made it pink and white, made it pretty, and she wrote it twice. Do you still have it? Yeah, we still have it. No, uh-huh. oh, that's Not awesome. Not her thing. Not her thing. Well, that's she okay. She loves riding too. on the back and she's loves taking pictures of the clouds. She loves seeing the scenery, but being in the driver's seat with that pressure, if you will, to not die every time you get on the motorcycle, she's not She's not really big on that. Understood. Same case at home. Renee loves to be on the back, but yeah, doesn't have any interest. She says that's her time to just relax, and she spends a fair amount of time sleeping back there. I think she's getting better at <laughs> at not doing that. Well, that was, <laughs> and, that, and that's the other problem, right? We had almost 20 motorcycles in the garage when we got married and one of those was a honda goldwing so she's very used to riding on the goldwing and sleeping on the goldwing and things of that nature so after selling the goldwing uh she really has no interest in sitting on the back of an adventure bike seat for hours on end i can't say that that <clears throat> doesn't make sense yeah <laughs> so if you ever want your uh significant other to ride with you after having a goldwing just don't get a goldwing yeah, good good idea. Oh, man. Well, cool. It looks like we're getting ready to run out of time. So you've heard the podcast before. Uh, you know that there are five questions that I get to ask you. These are mm-hmm. thinkers, right? Getting you to think outside the box. I have 20 questions, and I put them in the randomizer wheel, and you get the five that we that we have come up. Nice. Are you familiar with that? I am. Cool. Okay, here we go. Question number okay. one. What is something you believe that other people think is insane? Hmm. Sorry. Again? So the question is, what is something that you believe that other people think is insane? So like a belief of yours. Other people think is insane. A belief of mine that other people think is That there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. Oh, that's a good one. And I ride very, and very true. I ride everywhere, right? Like if if you're riding in snow and ice, if you have studded tires, you're golden. If you're riding in snow and ice and you have heated gear, I've ridden through the middle of Nevada in Thanksgiving, the break between Thanksgiving and Christmas, 
minus 17 degrees, rode all day long. Heated gear plugged in. I had heated socks, heated pants, heated jacket. I was on the gold wing. An amazing time. Only person out there. I would imagine. It was phenomenal. phenomenal. But I was toasty. I was warm. Get to where I'm going and pull in and walk into the hotel with the motorcycle helmet. They're like, what in the F are you doing? How are you not dead? I'm like, no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. That is awesome. And, And very true. I do not believe that is insane at all. That's a good one. But yes, most people probably do. Okay, so question number two. What is the best or most worthwhile investment you have made? This could be an investment of money, time, energy, resources. And then how did you decide to make that investment? So what is the best or most worthwhile investment you have made? And how did you decide to make that investment? I have to say the time spent. So my investment would be time. and It would be the time spent putting into my kids to help them be the best people they can be. I love it. If you've never had kids, uh, it's just, it's, it's a phenomenal, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to, how to do something. Like it's just helping these little critters become the best people they can be. And then watching them make decisions and do things that make you proud and happy that you help them get to that space is just, it's, it's remarkable. Absolutely. Okay. Question number three. If you were having a conversation with somebody that has never ridden a motorcycle, how would you describe motorcycling to be? So the question is, how would you describe motorcycling to somebody that has never ridden a motorcycle? Hmm. I would want initially to say it's like the feeling of flying and being unbound but if nobody has felt what it feels like to fly, that's not a really good analogy. <laughs> so how would I describe that? I mean, as cliche as it sounds, freedom is the one thing that people always talk about. But yes, freedom is one thing. Um, man, I have to say it feels like being connected to the earth. Like you feel you feel the change in air temperature. You smell the changes in topography. And riding through the desert, you can smell the dirt. Riding in the pines, you can smell the pine needles in the trees. You can, oh man. Um, near our local shop over here, Delama Motorsports, there's actually a bakery. I want to say it's a Sarah Lee bakery, if I remember right. But sometimes going there, you can smell them cooking cinnamon rolls. It's like these experiences that you don't get in a car with your AC on having that perfect temperature of air blowing at you. You just, there's, there's elements that you get while riding on a motorcycle that make me feel connected more so than any other vehicle. I can relate. And I think that is, uh, that's a pretty good way of, I think that's a great description. I think that would, uh, maybe create somebody's desire to go and check it out. Question number four, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months? A hundred dollars or less in the last six months. I would have to say it's my Aeromoto tire inflator. So I saw a random advertisement for this tire inflator. So for years I've been using the slime plug into the motorcycle, either the battery tender lead or a 12 volt socket tire inflator. Mm -hmm. But recently I saw an advertisement for Aeromoto and it just looked amazing. 
So it's basically a 20 milliamp battery pack that you can charge your phone with. You can use as an external battery pack, but it's also a tire inflator. It goes up to 120 PSI. It can do bicycles. You can set it to 6 PSI and do basketballs, which I've used this thing like 30 times in the last month, pumping up balls for the kids. I walked out one morning, my wife's tire was flat, so I removed the screw, plugged it, and aired it up with this thing, and everyone's lives were back on track. So, yeah, that's my, like 79 bucks, I think, on Amazon. And uh, I've used it, like I said, more than 20 times, and I've used it from pumping up the kids' balls to repairing my wife's tire to seeding beads on motorcycle tires that I've changed. So, yeah, super awesome. Wow, that's cool. I've got an affiliate link for that on Amazon if you want it. Share it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you know what? Send me the link, and then I'll put it in the show notes. How's that? Sounds great. Because that's how affiliate links work. When you talk about it, people buy it, you make money on it. Uh, Let's see. Question number five. What is something really weird or unsettling that seems to happen to you on a regular basis? Do you have anything? Weird or unsettling? Um, weird or unsettling. Oh, weird or unsettling. I have it for you. You have never met anybody in your life, I guarantee you, who has run out of gasoline more times than I have. (laughs) Yeah, I, for whatever reason, like, I I don't know. I don't know if it's because I just want to get the most out of life every single time or the most out of my tank every (laughs) single time. I don't know. I'll just, I'll look down and be like, I got enough to make it to wherever I'm going. And there has been so many. If you were to dial my buddy Chris and be like, hey, Chris, guess what Kyle did? His answer would absolutely be, oh, he ran out of gas again. And it's like my, it's like my joke with him. It's like, if I run out of gas, I'll send him a picture of me running out of gas just because it's just crazy. But anyway, the the whole thing started (laughs) with my BMW. I had a nine gallon gas tank. So it's like I never had to get gasoline, so I just wouldn't get it. And then, of course, they'd be like, oh, I still have a quarter of a tank left. Everyone else is topping off, and I didn't. So guess who runs out of gas? The guy with the biggest gas tank. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Cool. That's the five questions. That wraps that up. That about gets us to the end of the show. Do you have any final parting words? Final parting words? Um, for those that are listening, Craig, Mr. Wildass, is an awesome dude. I want you to know that I appreciate your friendship and it's been awesome learning to, not learning, but getting to know you and your family, your employees, just everyone around you seems to be a really cool person or great person. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to call you a friend. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, you are one of those people. So thank you for, uh, for everything. Where can we follow you? Yeah. So, I mean, I've got a couple different places. If you want to support the family financially, we have a website, minibikes.biz, where we sell tires and wild-ass seat cushions and seal savers that save you hundreds of dollars of maintenance on your ports. So minibikes.biz, of course, YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash minibikes, and then on the old Instagram, at minibikes as well. At many bikes, so as in a lot of bikes, many not yeah, bikes. yeah. So that that so many bikes happened when I was a kid. I had a BMX bike, a road race bike, a mountain bike, and some POS. We called it the shock bike, an old huffy bike that had a monoshock. So I had multiple bikes. So that's where I got the many bikes name. 
And then, of course, when I started riding motorcycles, I had a dirt bike and a street bike, and then the dirt bike, a sport bike, and a street bike. And like I said, when I got married, there were 19 bikes in the garage, basically one of every genre and then one of every make, pretty much. And then as every life event has happened, one or two of those have gone by the way, and we are where we are today. <laughs> right. That happens. Cool. I think that's it. Folks, if you like what you're hearing, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. You can follow the adventures on Facebook or Instagram by looking for The Real Wild Ass. Of course, I am Wild Ass Craig. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple weeks. And of course, thank you again, Kyle, for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Craig. It's been awesome.